from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. Question for you to ponder. How likely do you think it is that you, sometime in the next decade or two, will fly in a plane that is powered entirely by electricity, or alternately, a plane powered by hydrogen? Let's find out what stands in the way between you and your zero emissions flight. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So as far as I can tell, there are basically four ways to decarbonize aviation. First, stop flying so much. I don't want to get into that one, but let's just say I don't think it's going to be enough on its own. Second, don't decarbonize aviation directly, but offset its impact with carbon credits or carbon removals or something like that. Same story for me, might play a role, but not a full solution. Third is what's actually mostly happening today, uh, or at least getting announced today, and that is switch to sustainable aviation fuel, either bio-based fuel or potentially synthetic fuels made from captured CO2 and hydrogen. Lots to talk about there, but for today, let's focus on the fourth category, which is zero emissions aircraft. This is planes powered by something other than a drop-in jet fuel, maybe electricity, maybe hydrogen, maybe a hydrogen carrier. This is certainly the most disruptive of the four groups when you think about what it means for aircraft design, airport infrastructure, regulatory and certification, et cetera, et cetera. And there are a series of big technology questions, particularly around which segments of aviation, if any, these technologies would best address. So let's get into it. My guest is Jayant Mukhopadhyay, who conducts aviation research at the International Council on Clean Transport. Also, I will note, he has a PhD from Stanford in aeronautics and astronautics, uh, where his research focused on, quote, developing a virtual flight testing framework that utilized multi-fidelity information sources and quantified the uncertainties in simulation predictions. Like you, I have no idea what that means, but sounds cool. Here's Giant. Giant, welcome to Catalyst. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's great to have you here to take to the skies and talk about zero emissions aircraft. Um, so I think we'll divide this conversation into, by, by technology, sort of. So we'll talk about electric aircraft and we'll talk about hydrogen powered aircraft and we'll see where we land at the tail end of that. Ooh, this is a lot of flight metaphors that I don't mean to be using. Um, okay. Let's, let's start with electric aircraft. Where, where are we? Like what's getting developed right now? What are we seeing in the works as far as pure battery electric aviation? So, uh, in terms of battery electric aviation, we have about two or three companies that are really, uh, on the forefront of this, uh, and they're developing different sizes of aircraft. Uh, so the first is Aviation, which is developing uh, the Alice. Uh, that's the name of their aircraft. And it's 
a nine seater airplane that can that they say can travel about eight hundred and fifty nautical miles uh, without accounting for reserves. Slightly bigger than that is Hart Aerospace, which is a 19-seater aircraft, and they're claiming 400 kilometers, including reserves. Uh, And then at the highest level, there is Wright Electric, and they're trying to build a 100-seater aircraft. Uh, But they're they're also developing newer battery technology, so it's unclear what kind of ranges they're expecting to see with those. And... You mentioned the ranges for each of those. Obviously, a nine-seater plane, as you know, current nine-seater plane probably operates a, a totally different duty cycle from a nineteen-seater. Obviously, from a hundred-seater, are those ranges in line with what you would expect to see for an aircraft of that size, based on how we use those types of aircraft today, or is that you know, uh, is it less than how we typically use them today? Obviously, also depends on the routes, the recharge times, all this kind of stuff, but just orient us there. Yeah. So we're actually, so we recently did a study on these electric aircraft and we found that those ranges were a little optim on the optimistic side of uh, what uh, can be expected with current battery technology and including sort of the standard reserves that are required for uh, flights, you would probably get about 150 kilometers out of the nine-seater aircraft, which is a lot less. Uh, that's uh, close to 100 miles, at which point, if you can, you should just drive. So it is um, quite short and really only useful for things like island hopping or places where basically geography becomes a limiting factor in terms of trains or cars. Uh, so think of, thinking of Norway, for example, where fjords uh, cut into the way of roads. And so driving is not possible. And you really do have to take those really short hop flights. In general, these are much shorter than what current aircraft of that size would be able to do. They often can go much further in the uh, thousand kilometer range. Uh, so that's about 60 uh, miles, uh, sorry, 600 miles. Um, and so these are significantly shorter than what, uh, fossil fueled aircraft can do, but they would be also a lot more efficient up to two and a half to three times more efficient than, um, fossil fueled aircraft on just like a pure energy basis. So obviously the limiting factor for range is, as you said, this is sort of assuming current battery technology. To my experience with companies that are pursuing electric aviation of one kind or another, they are generally not assuming current battery technology. Some of them will say our initial aircraft doesn't rely on a battery breakthrough or something like that. But in, in the long term, most of them are assuming that batteries become a lot more energy dense. So mm-hmm. when you're saying sort of the existing expectations are a little bit ambitious, that assumes sort of static bat- tip battery energy density and how yeah. much how much of a breakthrough do we need versus incremental improvement to get to the types of ranges that you would see out of traditional aircraft today? Out of traditional aircrafts, probably significantly larger. But the fact of the matter is traditional aircraft are generally overbuilt. They're designed for ranges that are much longer than what are actually used. Uh, So when you're talking about actual usage, they're 
uh, and you're talking about turboprop aircraft. So these are the ones with the propellers that you can see spinning around. Uh, they're the most of the flights are under 750 kilometers, and like the median flight distance is about 400 kilometers. And to get to those ranges, you still need approximately a doubling of battery storage densities. So if you're talking about sort of the Tesla Model 3, like state-of-the-art battery technology, that you can get about 250 watt-hours per kilogram of battery. You would need to get to about 500 watt-hours per kilogram to really make those ranges viable for most of these aircraft, regardless of size. Whether you're talking about 9, 19, or 100-seat aircraft, you require at least a doubling of current battery technology. And that's really a significant increase, especially when you're thinking about just lithium-ion batteries. That is close to sort of the theoretical limit of what is possible when you start packing cells into a pack and start taking into account sort of the thermal uh, cooling requirements that would be uh, associated with the size of batteries that these aircraft require. So yeah, I think getting to 500 uh, is is a challenge for sure. That is, I would define that as a breakthrough. So do you think there's a realistic path to market wherein these electric aircraft companies start with shorter range uh, aircraft that maybe don't meet the existing duty cycles of most aircraft of that size, but there's enough of a market there for the puddle jumpers, or as you've called them, fjord jumpers, uh, to get into the market that way. And then they slowly ride the, or quickly ride the battery energy density curve upward into longer and longer range aircraft over time. There is actually a significant market for that because airlines have in the past few decades shut off shorter routes because these really small commuter aircraft were are really uneconomical and inefficient to operate. And so the operating costs got so large that the ticket prices became unaffordable. With these smaller electric aircraft, you have a much lower operating cost. And so the economics of these shorter routes actually starts making sense again. And that is why uh, you might be able to have these small airplanes enter at much lower ranges. But as you end up, as these battery technologies improve, you can replace the battery and get longer ranges on the same airframe, which is kind of an interesting concept and something that is being suggested by uh, hard aerospace and aviation and the like. And what is the timeline that we're talking about here? Like when one of these companies saying that they're going to be in market, what is the pathway to getting to market from a regulatory perspective, an infrastructure perspective, and so on? Like when, when we might we see these in operation? And that is uh, the million-dollar question. Uh, currently, there is one certified electric aircraft, and that one is the Pipistrel um, Velis Electro. It's just a two-seater, and it can fly for about 40 minutes, and it's more of a training aircraft. Uh, but when you're talking about commercial aircraft, that has a whole other set of sort of certifications that are required. These companies are saying about 2024 for uh, entry into market. I am guessing it's probably going to be more like 2026 by the time they're actually able to deliver aircraft on a regular basis to customers. Got it. And what about from an infrastructure perspective? How difficult is it? Obviously, you need charging infrastructure at the airport, 
maybe you need mm-hmm. more power to the airport. I don't know. Yeah. Like what, what, how, how big a challenge is that relative to the challenge of just like making an airplane and getting it certified? I, so I don't really think that the charging infrastructure is that much of a problem. Yes, it is a bit of an investment from the airport side. You would have to start bringing in pretty high capacity chargers for these aircraft. These aircraft require batteries on the size of 700 kilowatt hours. That's about 10 times the size of the current sort of Tesla uh, standard. And so for that, you do require big chargers and uh, higher megawatt, there's a kilowatt hour or megawatt chargers, but that's not necessarily like a technological barrier, more of just a money thing. And, uh, and I think the economics of the electric aircraft and sort of the energy efficiency gains that you see when you use uh, electricity instead of uh, regular jet fuel for these aircraft would justify that investment. And I don't really think that's going to be a significant uh, problem. And the other thing is, if you do start getting these chargers in airports, there are other parts of the ground operations that can be electrified. So for example, like an aircraft right now, when it's taxiing, is using its massive aircraft engine at very low throttle to really move this aircraft on the ground. It's it's extremely inefficient. Um, so for example, that could be turned into an electric tow truck that moves the aircraft around the airport gets it to the runway, and then you can spool up the engine and get ready for takeoff. And so there's the small efficiency and sort of energy improvements that can be, that come along with developing the electricity infrastructure at airports. So overall, what, you know, what impact do you think that electric aviation might have on the overall aviation market on emissions from aviation, like how big a deal are we talking about here potentially and when? So this is, this is the bit of a bummer in this whole story is uh, these electric aircraft in the end don't actually end up playing a significant role in terms of the global aviation market. We're talking about uh, close to like 0.1% of the global aviation traffic can be serviced by these aircraft. Now that's in terms of sort of uh, passenger kilometers. Now, if you're talking about actual departures, that's more in the range of two to five percent of total departures that can be addressed by these electric aircraft. And sort of that difference in uh, passenger kilometers and departures is because you, when you have these really short flights, you you have them serviced multiple times in a day. So that's more departures, but a fewer uh, fewer passenger kilometers. So it, it does it does end up having a greater impact in the departure space than in the overall aviation space. Um, but there are other technologies that can uh, address a little more of the traffic question. So we'll get to other technologies, but I guess the other thing I realize that makes me wonder is to what extent is charge time an issue if we're trying to operate these planes for multiple runs a day is, and we're going to try to put as big a battery pack in as we can. Do we need super fast charging? Are the you know current batteries capable of that? Uh, is the electric load at the airport capable of that? Or is that just not an issue? So the when you're talking about sort of megawatt class of chargers, then it doesn't end up becoming a problem because these air, these aircraft can then be charged in usually 
in less than an hour. The other thing is when you're when you're taking into account the reserves of uh, uh, that are required for flight, these batteries don't get discharged all the way. They get discharged at maximum about seventy percent. So you have a significant amount of uh, charge that's already left. So you those charge times aren't go- necessarily going to be a problem. Again, these are in terms of battery technology, the weight is still really the most limiting factor. Uh, charging, faster charging, uh, those are technologies that are developing and maturing much faster than the weight of the batteries are reducing. Okay, so let's move on from pure electric then and talk about another zero emissions aircraft trend that we've been starting to see, which is hydrogen powered aircraft. So there's two categories here um, that we should talk about separately. There's using hydrogen in a fuel cell to power the aircraft, and then there's combusting hydrogen directly. Can you just talk at the high level about the trade-offs between those two? Yeah. So when you're talking about fuel cells, these these are more efficient than when you're combusting hydrogen. You're using sort of uh, chemistry to convert that hydrogen into water and uh, get electricity out of it. The other advantage of using fuel cells is that it is uh, it is really zero emission. Like the only emission is water vapor, which yes, uh, is a greenhouse gas and can cause warming. But at the sort of altitudes that these aircraft would operate at, uh, that is less of a concern. When you're combusting hydrogen, however, you get water vapor, but you also get uh, nitrous oxides, the NOx emissions uh, from the combustion process itself. So there is, um, so it isn't necessarily zero emission. But on the flip side, when you have a gas turbine that is powered by hydrogen, that can provide a lot higher power than a fuel cell can. Um, Fuel cells right now are in the range of 200, 300 kilowatts. um, Whereas when you're talking about the power required to run a single aisle aircraft like the A320, we're talking in the megawatts, in tens of megawatts, 20, 30 megawatts uh, required for that to generate the thrust to be able to fly that aircraft. So fuel cells are significantly smaller in terms of power output than uh, combustion. And that's really where the, uh, the advantage of hydrogen combustion lies. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events, or click the link in the show notes. So to the extent that we see activity in hydrogen uh, aircraft development, what's the balance right now between fuel cell and combustion? So again, because of these differences in the amount of power that can be provided by these uh, 
different propulsion technologies. The fuel cell aircraft is sort of limited to short, smaller turboprop engines that can carry at most probably 60 or 70 passengers. And when you're using gaseous hydrogen, you're getting ranges of about 600 kilometers. Uh, whereas if you're talking about liquid hydrogen combustion, which is on the other end of that, you can fly like 168 passengers, almost 200 miles or 3,400 kilometers. Like these are significantly larger uh, ranges that can be expected from hydrogen combustion, just because you can produce a lot higher power in a gas turbine engine than in a fuel cell. Um, and correspondingly, these companies are, there's different people that are working on these uh, aircraft. Like in, on the fuel cell side, you have smaller startups that are working on that, like Zero Avia or Universal Hydrogen. Um, these are companies that are able to be viable because the capital investment required for developing a smaller aircraft of like the 60 to 70 passenger size is a lot less compared to the capital investment required to build an A320-sized uh, aircraft. Now, these are, on that scale, there are only Airbus and Boeing that operate. It is essentially a duopoly when you're talking about flights, uh, aircraft that can carry more than 150 passengers. And, and you do see, out of those two, Airbus is the one that is developing, or at least in has plans to develop a hydrogen aircraft of that size. And it, it's called the Zero E program. Um, they're currently trying to test out a hydrogen-powered gas turbine. Um, interestingly, they're trying to put it on a on the A380, which is like the biggest aircraft that they have. They they're trying to test uh, the hydrogen combustion engine in conjunction with the other four engines and see what the emissions and uh, contrail formation and things like that, uh, that come out of that engine are. So that is, uh, that is on the uh, high end uh, of the passenger and range capacity. Um, whereas fuel cells, again, uh, stay towards the lower end um, with still really only replacing turboprop engines uh, like, or aircraft kind of like the ATR 72 or, um, the Dash 8. These are sort of um, aircrafts you'll see servicing generally like smaller hub to a bigger hub uh, kind of routes. So the thing with hydrogen is that it's very light, but it it takes up a lot of space, right? So typically, as you think about something like aviation, like the trade-off is, yeah, you don't have the weight problem that batteries present. Batteries are very heavy. On the other hand, you need a lot of space to store sufficient hydrogen to power an aircraft of any size, but particularly true for these larger aircraft. So, mm-hmm. uh, to the uh, so for those who are designing these hydrogen-powered aircraft, how are they dealing with the space issue? Yes, uh, the space issue is significant, especially because aircraft are also constrained um, both in mass and volume. As and if you've traveled economy on a budget airline, you know you have to fit into ever-narrowing rows of seats and have to pay for every ounce of baggage that you bring on. So that that requirement for the fuel being extremely energy-dense, both in mass and volume, is extremely pronounced in aviation. Hydrogen has really high energy per unit mass, but has really low energy per unit volume. So when you're talking about Hydrogen, you can either store it in compressed 
tanks, but really you need to get to liquid hydrogen to be able to get these longer ranges out of these aircraft, to really be able to fit enough hydrogen into the aircraft. These, What ends up happening is you end up sacrificing seats. You end up sacrificing payload capacity or passenger capacity to be able to carry some of that extra hydrogen, which isn't the worst because you can... Uh, even when you take into account the volume requirement uh, of liquid hydrogen, you can still service 160 passengers traveling 3,400 kilometers. That is at least, that is two thirds of all narrow body flights or about a third of all uh, commercial aviation. Liquid hydrogen aircraft can replace one third of all passenger aviation that is flown currently. And that is a significant chunk, and that is really worth pursuing in that sense. So where are we in the development of these hydrogen-powered aircraft? Uh, what's the timeline expectation around the, the development here? And I guess as an addendum to that question, for uh, fuel cell-powered aircraft, given that you're saying that, that the best fit for those are sort of in the smaller range, that's where there may be actually some competition between you know the sort of higher end of the electric aircraft and the lower end of the hydrogen aircraft potentially mm -hmm. serving some of the same use cases, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, to get to, for electric aircraft to get to sort of the fuel cell ranges, you do need those batteries to get better. So for the time being, those fuel cell aircraft will operate in a space that is free of competition from the electric aircraft. Uh, but these fuel cell aircraft are sort of closer to market than the liquid hydrogen combustion aircraft, but are slightly further away than uh, the electric aircraft. So for example, for electric aircraft, I said 2026 is about when you'd expect commercial deliveries of those aircraft. For fuel cell aircraft, you could probably expect them 2028, 2030. That's because these fuel cell technologies and sort of the gaseous compressed gaseous hydrogen storage has been proven in automotives with those fuel cell aircraft, like the uh, sorry, uh, fuel cell cars, like the Toyota Mirai. When you're talking about hydrogen combustion, that is a completely new technology. Like no such engine exists and flies currently. So it requires a lot more development uh, to get that to market. And those aircraft are likely only to show up in the market in about 2035. And that's the goal that Airbus has uh, set for itself. And when you're talking about that timeline from now to 2035, that gives them about three or four years to develop and mature the technologies. It gets gives them about two or three years of putting the supply chains and the manufacturing in place to be able to mass produce an aircraft of that size. And then it takes about eight, seven to eight years to actually build those aircraft and start delivering them uh, consistently. And so with that timeline, yes, 2035 is probably the earliest I would expect a liquid hydrogen combustion aircraft to show up. And then there is also the fact that aircraft have really long lifespans. These There are aircraft that are flying today that were built in the 1990s. So with that in mind, the fleet turnover then becomes another sort of barrier for these um, hydrogen aircraft to be to make an impact. You need 
airlines to start retiring older aircraft and buying these new hydrogen aircraft. And so our projections suggest that even though hydrogen aircraft could service a third of uh, passenger aviation, the actual market penetration is probably going to be more like 6 to 12% by 2050 because of that slow fleet turnover rate. And I guess similar question on the hydrogen side to what I asked on the electric side, which is infrastructure requirement. I mean, here there's more, right? Because in the context of an electric aircraft, you really just need a charger. You've already got an electrical hookup. Obviously, maybe you need to increase your power capacity, but but that's not a total overhaul of refueling infrastructure. Uh, hydrogen would be a different story here. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. Uh Hydrogen production, delivery, storage, refueling, all of these are challenges that will need to be addressed. Specifically, the hydrogen production and delivery is really massive. And this is where the drop-in sustainable aviation fuels become more uh, attractive because those can be produced and sort of use the infrastructure that is already in place for jet fuel. Hydrogen would require you to build uh, completely new plants. You'd need to have, if you're using cryogenic, uh, sorry, liquid hydrogen, you would require cryogenic storage solutions. And really the best option for all of this is to be able to produce and store that hydrogen on site. So the airport itself would have the means to produce that hydrogen and store it, and then use it as quickly as possible. Um, Because hydrogen storage is also expensive. Um, When you're talking about liquid hydrogen, again, you start having, there is heat that will creep into the system and boil that uh, liquid hydrogen off into gaseous hydrogen, and then you have to reliquify it. And so that cycle becomes pretty expensive and energy uh, intensive. So in an ideal scenario, an airport is able to have all of that hydrogen produced on site and used as soon as possible. And the estimates for about for what kind of investment that would require um, is on the order of, so to build all of that on-site production and storage, it would cost as much for the airport to build a whole new terminal. Like that's kind of the uh, sort of scale of investment that is required. And that's significant but airports build new terminals fairly often, especially in this day and age of rapidly increasing, um, rapidly growing aviation markets. So it's not, it's not unfathomable, but it is an investment that is required. And I guess that gets to, you know, this conversation is about zero emissions aircraft. So we're not talking so much about sustainable aviation fuel and drop-in fuels, whether they're bio-based or uh, electric fuels, but In this context, I guess I want to ask, stepping back, looking at the progression of development of both electric aviation and hydrogen-powered aviation, and then comparing against the world of sustainable aviation fuel, which has its own challenges that we won't get into now, but has the benefit of not requiring all this infrastructure turnover, what is your prognosis for how we may end up balancing these, I guess, three different big categories of mm-hmm. uh, aviation decarbonization? That, that's a great question, actually. So the way I like to introduce all of these decarbonization pathways for aviation is them sort of 
taking different niches of the uh, aviation market. So electric aviation services, really just the smallest aircraft, the shortest routes. Hydrogen aviation can do short haul and a little bit of the medium haul, uh, sort of the single aisle aircraft market can be replaced by hydrogen. And then sustainable aviation fuels would play the biggest role in the longest um, flights. So when you're talking about long haul flights, flights greater than 4,000 kilometers, um, intra, it's intercontinental flights, flights that go over oceans, those are the kinds of flights that uh, sustainable aviation fuel would have to play a part in. And my view, and I think uh, a lot of people uh, hold this, is we kind of have to do everything. Uh, there is going to be a shortage of uh, each of these fuels. Uh, sustainable aviation fuel is really hard to make. Um, hydrogen is, in fact, a precursor to especially the synthetic uh, sustainable aviation fuels. So instead of using the hydrogen, combining it with uh, car uh, captured carbon to make the uh, synthetic fuels, if you can use the hydrogen directly, by all means, use that hydrogen directly, it'll be more energy efficient to do so. And then on the lower end, electrify everything. Um, as much can be electrified, should be electrified. Um, wherever hydrogen can be used, should be used. And everything else will require SAF to decarbonize. And that's really the only way we get to net zero emissions by 2050. Taking another big step back and looking at the overall climate impact of aviation, as I understand it, there's actually a fairly significant portion of the aviation impact on global warming that comes from contrails uh, as opposed to from greenhouse gas emissions directly from aircraft. How do you think mm -hmm. about that in the context of the development of, of fuel switching, of new aircraft? Is there a completely other category of things that we need to do to mitigate contrails? So contrail avoidance is uh, of paramount importance as well, because they say that current research suggests that the impact, the non-CO2 impacts, which includes these contrail formation, can be twice as much as the impact from CO2 alone. And so trying to avoid these non-CO2 impacts is super important. The good thing about uh, using synthetic aviation fuels is that automatically addresses some of that contrail impact because the contrails form because of incomplete combustion, because of sort of aromatic compounds that are in jet fuel. When you're creating pure synthetic aviation fuel, you don't have that aromatic compounds. And so the contrail formation reduces automatically. With hydrogen, it is the jury's still out. These engines don't really exist. So you can't really tell whether those contrail formation is going to be higher because one of the outputs is water vapor or whether it's going to be lower because there is no soot that is formed when you combust hydrogen. So that's kind of a very active area of research and kind of a question that Airbus is trying to answer by putting a hydrogen combustion engine on an A380 and testing both engines in the same environmental conditions and comparing emissions. In electricity, that's the best part is you don't have any emissions at all. You don't have... Uh, you don't have even the water vapor. It is just electricity that's being converted into thrust by those motors. 
And so that, that, that's the holy grail, zero emissions, no environmental impact, um, except to produce the batteries. And to produce the electricity that powers the batteries. Yeah, exactly. But either way, substantially better than any, any alternative, if you could do it. Yeah, so, so that's actually an interesting point, because when you're talking about the electricity used to produce the hydrogen, for example, or the synthetic uh, aviation fuels, even producing those fuels is about is less than 50% efficiency. So you lose half the energy that you put in uh, just to produce these fuels. So automatically electric aircraft are twice as efficient. And then when you take into account the electric propulsion efficiencies, you can get close to six to seven times more efficiency uh, between electric aircraft and jet aircraft that are run on synthetic aviation fuels. And so that's, that's, Enormous because when you, if, if you try and run the entire aviation industry on electricity, right, in 2050, the amount of electricity that would be required to decarbonize aviation is the entire renewable energy production today. So all of the ener- renewable energy that is produced today could be used up in aviation alone. So that sort of gives you really the scale of the energy demand that would be required from aviation. And it's not just the aviation sector that's trying to electrify. It is all these other uh, sectors that are trying to electrify and reduce their carbon impact. So just the pure demand of electricity in the next few decades is going to balloon. And decarbonizing the grid also needs to take into account that increase in energy demand. Yeah, I mean, I agree. This is one of the the most underappreciated things about lots of different decarbonization plans, which is so many of them rely upon load growth and electricity, aviation being one major category amongst a bunch. I mean, take things like direct air capture, take, you know, heating electrification, all sorts of things. Like every one of them stacks on top of each other and supercharges our need to decarbonize, but also expand the grid simultaneously, which is a challenge in and of itself, and a topic for another day. So in the meantime, Giant, thank you so much. This was uh, super illuminating for me. Yeah, thank you. Giant Mukhopadhyaya is an aviation researcher at the International Council on Clean Transportation. What did you think? As always, we welcome your feedback. Uh, let us know. Find the show on Twitter at, at @catalystpod. You can also find me there. If you like the show today, as always, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. We do appreciate that. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to reports about zero emissions aviation that Giant and his team at ICCT have put together. And as always... Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf and Dalvin Abouaji, mixing by Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. <laughs>